Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who covered the issues that matter most. Because not only had we been in Kandahar, but my camera person, Phil Goodwin, happened to be there right at the moment where one boy leaned in to say hello to the man he revered and another boy leaned into the president's car and the man he wanted to kill. And my camera person was filming all of it. This week, I'm speaking to the BBC's chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette. Lise reports regularly from the Middle East and Afghanistan, where she's been reporting for over three decades. Lise's list of awards include an Emmy and a Peabody for her team's reporting from Syria. Lise, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to be connected to New York, to you. Lisa, where to start with your career? You've, for the past three decades or so, covered a lot of conflict. Do you want to tell our audience how you became a journalist, how you got to be the international correspondent at the BBC? So I graduated from the University of Toronto from a master's degree in 1982, which I know must seem like ancient history. But it was also a very difficult time to graduate, albeit not as difficult now, but difficult still. And difficulty is sometimes in the mind of the person receiving the difficulty. It was a recession in Canada. There were no jobs for journalists. And any media that I approached said, well, either you need experience. And all I had was writing for a university newspaper and two articles in the real estate news in Toronto. Or they said you needed to go to journalism school. And the thought of being in a class with everybody wanting to be a journalist, I just thought there there has to be a better way. And also from the beginning, I didn't want to sit on the metro desk doing home news. I wanted to do foreign news. That's what I did my degree on. And my degree at the University of Toronto, for one way or another, to this day, I don't know why I focused on Africa so much and not just that, but African agriculture. So I got a volunteer placement, which was a genuine thing. I did volunteer work all through uh, all through school. Um, and by the luck of the draw, I was sent to West Africa, to a village with the wonderful name of Adzope, a, a short drive outside the capital of Cote d'Ivoire, Abidjan. Uh, and I worked there for four months. And then after that, well, I started to become what I already thought I was, but was evident to me, but not to anyone else, which was a journalist. And it was one of those classic right place, right time. There I was in Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, and the BBC is setting up its first West Africa office. Has The correspondent, Alexander Thompson, has to cover more than a dozen countries. And here I am with a funny name to uh, a British audience, wrong accent, wrong CV, wrong everything. And then the skies opened and God descended down and said, give Lise Doucette a job. And of course, it was at the time when, let us be honest, a country and a culture, which was very, very conscious of accents, was just allowing the Scots and the Welsh to read the news on the BBC. And so I kind of slipped in. but of course, and that was the time before social media, but the BBC would often get letters saying, where's Lise Doucette from? Where's her accent from? And yes, the occasional letter which said, can't you find British journalists who speak with a British accent? What's Lise Doucette doing on the BBC? But despite their best efforts to get rid of me, and there have been many along the way, here I am more than 30 years on, 
I'm still at the BBC. I'm so glad you brought that up, Lise, because I always wondered. I mean, so what what year was that? With your lovely accent. <laughs> I know. I, I, I don't know how I bloody made it to TV either, but um, somebody at Channel 4 let me on. But I mean, it's such a relevant point um, because that was, I mean, what year are we talking about when you actually started? So that was 80, that was 83. And a lot of people, I come from the east coast of Canada where there's a lot of Irish and Scottish. And now that people have, gotten over my accent my accent now is not so different on the BBC because there's a lot of different African accents on the BBC now both different British accents but also accents from around the world and often I get confused with my colleague Orla Guerin uh, my lovely friend who Orla is like Orla is 100% Irish like you <laughs> and they will say to me Lisa great report you know from Turkey from Egypt and I'll say well sorry you know, that wasn't me. Uh, that was actually that was actually Orla. And Orla and I one year did a, an event together uh, in the Edinburgh Festival so we could prove to people there was Lise Doucette and there was Orla Guerin. <laughs> we were different people, um, you know, exactly the same, but com- completely different. So people sometimes to this day think that I'm I'm Irish and are surprised when uh, when they say I'm I'm Canadian. You grew up in New Brunswick. Um, do you find, or did you find that your upbringing in a relatively small-ish place in Canada has kind of shaped your form of journalism? You you bring a great sense of humanity and empathy to every story you do. You really, really do. Do you feel like your background and your upbringing um, contributed to that? Growing up in a small community has many disadvantages. I see the advantage of people I've met along the way who've grown up in a university city, who've grown up in an urban environment, with all of the advantages and assets that that gives you. It opens literally opens your eyes to a much bigger world. But there are advantages too to growing up in a small town. And to this day, when I'm asked about my skills, I would say, I think one of my biggest skills of all is having grown up in a small town where people don't shut your door, their door, where Religion is not something rigid in a text. Religion is a way of living. It's a way of the community coming together. It's people's beliefs, but I would like to believe beliefs about treat others as you would like to be treated. It's a friendliness and an openness. And and I can see the difference sometimes with, let us say, not to, you know, to 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 descend into stereotypes, perhaps a little bit more reserved British colleagues. So you know, they, some will go and, and I exaggerate just a bit, you know, they'll sit down for an interview. Yes, thank you very much, Mr. President, you know, Mr. Ms. Prime Minister. Uh, let's, are we ready to start? Are we ready? Ready to start? Whereas I will sit down and I say, hello, how are you? How is your children? How's everything? Wow, that's so great. And then the producer will say, Lise, please don't start talking because if they say it when they're chatting, they're not going to say it later. <laughs> so I have this approach to journalism, which is to be, Personally, very personable, but as a journalist, I'm a journalist. And because I've been in journalism so long, some of the people that I've known along the way have become presidents, prime ministers, people of note. And when we meet, we are still friends, but when we sit down, there is the journalist sitting with the president, the prime minister, the king, whatever, the person who's a CEO. So, and I feel it has served me well because what it does is that you know, in our profession can be demonized. People can sometimes suspect the worst of us, think the worst of us. And I, I do joke, and it's not exactly a joke, where I say journalism is an excuse for bad manners. Because we sometimes think, oh, wow, we're so important. You know, wow, we're doing, we're on the television, we're on the radio, we're bringing the news. Um, which is why when I speak to young journalists, I always say manners matter. 
and which seems so obvious, but it's mm. not always obvious. Say thank you. Say um, so. I'm not going to say that a, a small town gave you more manners, but maybe it's a certain approach to life which may be a bit different. Absolutely. Let me ask you. This is a rather big question, Lisa, and might be difficult for you to answer. Is there a moment in your career that you could take a step back and say, "I'm very proud of that moment"? I'm always proud to be a journalist. There have been moments where. You know, I stood in front of a camera and you're sometimes just staring in, into the darkness and you know that you're announcing some important news to the world, an election won or lost, a war fought or finished. And that in the case of the either the BBC World Service or BBC World News Television, you are literally speaking to the world and that, you know, somewhere out there in the darkness, people are watching or listening and they're going, oh, my God wow, did you hear that on the news? But there have been moments where I've been fortunate or misfortunate, unfortunate to be either in what for some people, I mean, for people who aren't journalists, because journalists must be the only people in the world when when a bomb goes off, they run toward the explosion rather than away from the explosion. I mean, even even the medical staff sometimes pause for for just a moment. So there are places which I would say was right place, right time, and others would say wrong place, wrong time. One of them was... It was the one-year anniversary of the attacks of September the 11th. And the BBC said, well, would you like to go back and do a, a one-year anniversary piece in Afghanistan? And I said, well, there's really one big story, and that is, uh, where is Al-Qaeda? And I said, but it's a difficult, but it's a dangerous story. And I'm willing to do it, but it will be difficult and dangerous. And the producer said to me, I don't want to do anything that's difficult or dangerous. And I said, well, okay, plan B is... Uh, Pres- uh, President Hamid Karzai, who I'd known for many, many years, I knew him decades before he became uh, a president. I said, well, we can go and do one year in the life of President Karzai. And he goes, great, great, uh, great story. So we went to Kabul and hung around the palace day in, day out. Well, you know, it was a little bit much of a muchness until one day he said, well, actually, my brother, my half brother is getting married and it's going to be in Kandahar. And no journalists are coming, but you can come along with me. So we went with him. And what turned was supposed to be the marriage of his half-brother, which never mind that the bride was in a different country, country next door, it was all men. It turned into an assassination attempt against President Karzai. And that was when the eyes of the world were not just on Afghanistan, but were on Hamid Karzai. He was seen as the man who would give the, the United States the future, this kind of stability and security it wanted, not just in Afghanistan, but all the way to the United States, the memories of the attacks still so fresh. And so there we were. So the, the place was flooded by the by rangers. And so I get these calls from around the world because not only had we been in Kandahar, but my camera person, Phil Goodwin, happened to be there right at the moment where one boy leaned in to say hello to the man he revered and another boy leaned into the president's car, uh, the man he wanted to kill. And my camera person was filming all of it. So we had all of it from start to finish, the assassination attempt on, on camera. And then when we, were, when we were in this place where we were all protected, when people would call me up, you know, BBC would say, Lise, we've heard that the foreign minister, Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, is doing this. And I'd say, just a minute, hold on. Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, what is happening there? What is... So literally the room of the people who, you know, in the room where it happened, as Hamilton wow. said, that was the room where it was happened. And of course, no journalist could get to Kandahar. And there we were with a scoop, a scoop of the world. So for me as a journalist, that was quite an important moment. And in a country where I had spent 
so much time and had so much uh, affection for this country. There was another thing too, is that we flew then in the dark of night in the early hours of the morning back to Kabul. And President Karzai the next morning was going to get up and thank the United States for saving his life. Mm-hmm. He watched television before he did and he saw our report and he realized the person who had saved his life, obviously the American bodyguards had helped, but it was this Afghan boy who loved the president. And when he saw the other young Afghan coming forward, opening fire on his his revered hero, he jumped on him. <gasps> and it was that young boy who saved the president's life. And then afterwards, the bodyguards then opened fire. So the president then got up and announced that he wanted to honor this boy. And he was the hero of Afghanistan. So in some way, that cha- it was quite crucial then because the difference between the president saying a young Afghan saved my life and the Americans, the superpower saved my life, was really, really quite crucial in terms of the narrative in Afghanistan at that time and indeed beyond. I do remember that story, Lisa. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but were you guys in the kind of green zone in Kandahar? So it should have been safe because the Americans were allegedly protecting. Yes, we were surrounded by it, but it was just... They were still trying to work out the security detail for the president. And in fact, his cl- close protection had been demanding from the White House armored vehicles and better better protective gear. And the White House was dragging its feet. And because of that attack and because of the film that we were able to show what had happened with the security detail, not the Afghans not being trained enough, it wasn't properly trained. It wasn't their, necessarily their fault. President Bush got on the line and said, give them whatever it takes. So one of the, the bodyguards who was actually injured came up to me, Pete, and said, thanks, Lise. You know, we we actually ended up getting, uh, granted too late, but we ended up getting the equipment Protection. and the, yeah. the armored vehicles that we that we needed. Well, that's extraordinary. I mean, there you go. Impact, direct mm-hmm. impact. Before I move on to my next kind of bigger question, I'd love to to talk to you a little bit about Syria. I mean, you've covered Syria so extensively. I've heard you refer to it as a civil war, a sectarian war, a proxy war, and, and, and a war against children. I have noticed that, um, that that seems to be a theme in some ways for you, Lise, that you really want to tell the story of children at war. I mean, you did it in Gaza um, with that really wonderful film that James Jones directed as well. Is that very important for you to kind of somehow document war through the lens of, of children? One of my one of my male colleagues, uh, after I did um, Children of Syria, and then we did Children of the Gaza War, he said, please, why are you doing another film about children? And I said, you know, it's not just, quote unquote, a film about children. Through Syria, I've Syria solidified for me the view that whatever conflict we cover, no matter how complex and consequential it is, and they don't get much more complex and consequential than Syria, that if you drill down, that these are at their very heart human stories. They are stories about mothers and fathers and children and streets and neighborhoods and societies. Yes, of course, there's not just the politics of the nation, there's the the very, very difficult politics of the region and the politics beyond the region, which is threaded through it. But the stories which really matter, which carry it forward, are the stories of people not so different from you or I. And I've always felt that part of my job as a journalist is to narrow the gap, is to, to show that 
these are people who get up every day and have to find some measure of hope and humanity and even humor. And so doing stories about children were part of that understanding for me because I learned in Syria, trip after trip into Syria, and we were lucky to keep getting visas. I would come out and think, who is the person who most, who stays with me because of their story, because of their courage? And time and again, it was the story of a child who not only had lived through something that no, even no adults should live through, but the child was able to articulate the story. Didn't have to be told by the mother, the father, the uncle, the neighbor, the child, the little boy or girl, they themselves could tell this story and tell it so well. And often, as you know, in our journalism, children often feature as almost as decorations. They're smile, they're cute, or they're crying, they're sad. It's an important element in the story. And for me, I didn't want them to be the element. They were the actors in the story. Yeah. And I mean, that comes across in, in both of those films so vividly. You know, I remember one little girl saying, I think it was Madaya or, or Yarmouk, that they had absolutely no food. And of course, President Assad was using food as a weapon of war. People were starving. But this little girl turned around and told you that she had eaten a cat. Her and her family had eaten a cat. How can you not relate to that when you have a, a little girl on television saying that that's how desperate they were? It was just so poignant. And I mean, so desperate. I mean, who couldn't relate to their child, the shock of a child trying to be as grown up as possible, telling you in a matter of fact way that their cat was eaten. I mean, it's beyond, it's, it's unthinkable. And, you know, you mentioned the siege. Uh, and here it is, Syria, this modern war of our time, using the most medieval of tactics, the siege, using hunger as a weapon of war. And if I hadn't told you the story of being there during an assassination attempt against President Karzai, I would have told you how we got into finally, after months and months of lobbying and trying every possible contact to get into a besieged area close to Damascus. These are areas where food and families couldn't get into the besieged area and people couldn't get out and journalists couldn't get in. But after a lot, a lot of effort, we finally got in to the besieged enclave of Yarmouk on the southern edge of Damascus. Not only was it uh, another playing ground with the war between Syrian government forces and the opposition, on top of it, you had the rivalries between different Palestinian groups and right in the middle were the innocent civilians. And getting into Yarmouk, I wanted to see for myself, feel for myself, what it was to be besieged. How can anyone living anywhere in the world understand what it's like to be besieged, to wake up and all you have to eat is grass? I mean, every time, time and again, when we met people who by one negotiation or another at the end of a battle were able to escape from a besieged area, we'd say, well, you know, what did you eat? And they'd use the word in Arabic for, for grass. And I would think grass. And they would literally be pulling out herbs and weeds and that from the earth to eat. So we finally got into Yarmouk. And it was the most searing experience that we experienced in Syria, which is saying a lot for myself and for my Syrian colleagues as well, which is extraordinary. The intensity of the devastation, you know, literally the, the not a building left standing, but also the intensity of desperation. People moving towards us, begging with us 
to please, please, please to help them to leave. I, it was just, we all broke down crying at the end. I mean, how can we begin to understand that? That for me, well, as a journalist, was was actually this being able to get in and to try to convey that to people outside to to begin to understand how do we stand in someone else's shoes and shoes that are full of holes and battered and worn, the shoes of a person who's got literally nothing to eat except grass that's boiled with a bit of salt and pepper. With Yarmouk, for anybody that is listening, so Yarmouk has been, it's, it's a Palestinian camp, I guess. Just, on, as you said, Lise, on the outskirts of Damascus, um, and it's been there since the late 40s, as far as I know, after the Arab-Israeli war. Um, but so you have this camp where people are as you say, eating boiled grass because they're that desperate. And then a few miles down the road, you have Damascus. The contrast was surreal, surreal. But was also surreal is that I, I would go to Syrian government officials who I'd known uh, for many, many years since I was first based in the Middle East in 1994, which in Jordan, where I opened the BBC office. And so for five years, I was first a year in Jordan, where I covered the Jordanian-Israeli peace process. And then I moved to Jerusalem. But I used to go to Syria a lot. Uh, and this was a completely different time. This is when the current president's father was in control, President Hafez al-Assad. It was a, a time of you know, in, authoritarian rule where you know, they could, you'd ask Syrians at, in a market what the price of tomatoes were, and they would look at you like their eyes blinking, and you think, oh my God, they're thinking, what my God, this is, what's the right answer to this? People didn't discuss politics, but there was such kind people, so cultured, so refined, beautiful, beautiful culture, food, tapestries, uh, their carved wood, everything about Syria was, was so, so beautiful. So I would say to some of these people I'd known for years that, listen, five minutes away, do you realize that people are starving? And they go, no, no, you're this. And I'm, to this day, I don't know, were they had they convinced themselves that this was the case? Were they lying to me? In some cases, they were lying, but refusing to accept the reality. For them, all that mattered was that rockets, crude missiles were being fired from some of these besieged areas into the city, and people were dying in the city, in the government-controlled side. And of course, that mattered too. And it doesn't matter that the bombardment of the besieged areas was by uh, air power, artillery, and what was coming into Damascus was crude rockets. What really mattered, I often say in war, what matters more than the facts, the material facts, is the perception of these facts. And the perception of the people of Damascus was that they were also besieged in, in some way because they felt so threatened. So it was very, very, very hard. Every war unfolds on the ground and unfolds in the narrative about what's happening on the ground and people's perceptions of what's happening on the ground. And I think the perceptions matters more in the end in terms of the evolution of the war and people's attitudes uh, than the actual facts on the ground. Well, that, that's such an interesting point. And I think, it, you know, Assad was a kind of originally pro-Palestinian, I would have said. Mm -hmm. So, and, and he, I assume 
he saw that you know some of the rebel groups had kind of crept into into Yarmouk, and that's why he was attacking attacking them with, as you say, the most sophisticated weaponry out there. I want to stick to Syria just for a moment longer, and this is it will be a, a difficult one um, for you, Lisa. I know you were very good friends with Marie Colvin. You know, how do you, as a journalist, kind of keep going when you see somebody so close to you lose their life while being a journalist? And, and of course, Marie was was killed in Homs. It's such um it's a really difficult question. And the question was asked time and again um, in events uh, uh, after Marie died, events attended by Paul Conroy, the wonderful human being and really talented photographer that was with Marie till the end. He survived the attack on that makeshift uh, press center in the besieged city of Holmes where Marie was killed and where her family took the case to court and won that it was a deliberate attack. Uh, it was murder by the Syrian government forces. The Syrian government denies it to this to this day. But the question that always asked is, is, was it worth it? Because not only did Marie go once into homes, she came out, survived, and then went back again. And there's this moment in Paul Conroy's film, which I urge everyone uh, to see if you haven't seen it yet, uh, where he's, he, can, he admits that he says to Marie, he says, every bone in my body tells me, you know, all my instincts tell me, I'm paraphrasing, that we, we shouldn't go in. And Marie says to him, well, I'm going in then, you can stay here. And then, of course, Paul, Paul has to go in with her. He survives and she doesn't. But if she hadn't gone in the second time, she, you know, she kept, she was so driven. We have to go tell their story. The women in the basement are still there. People, the people that she'd met were pleading with her to tell the story of the world. And she felt that responsibility so enormously. And, of course, as a journalist, to be there as one of the only journalists there is extraordinary uh, moment for her journalistically so she went back in and sadly it it cost her her life and you know my colleague and very good friend Lindsay Hilsom also had a meeting a dinner with Marie in Beirut just before Marie went in with the smugglers and Lindsay who's among the bravest of the brave she's Channel 4's international editor you know she said Marie this is beyond my threshold of danger and Marie just looked at her and said it's what we do it's what we do I'm going to move to a lighter question, which we discussed before I press the record button, about perhaps a crazy experience that you've had in this industry that never quite made it to air. I'll tell you a story in the sense of always be prepared for the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. And this comes from a question that I'm often asked, and I'm sure you're asked about it, Jana, as well, where people say must be difficult to be a female journalist. And in my case, must be difficult to go to all those places where, you know, women are treated so, so terribly. So I often tell stories of which come down to hospitality over ideology. And this one was in 1991. I was the BBC's Pakistan correspondent, Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I was sitting in my office in Pakistan and the phone rang. And this representative of one of the, turned out to be one of the more extreme Mujahideen Afghan opposition groups, fighting groups, said, hello. And I said, yes, this is the BBC office. He goes, yes, we'd, we'd like to give you the news that we have taken the city of Khost in East Afghanistan. I said, oh, fantastic. Great. He said, we would like the BBC to cover it. And I said, well, wonderful. We would also like to cover it. He goes, fantastic. So who will be coming? And I said, well, I'll be coming. And then he said, oh, uh, well, we want the BBC to cover it. <laughs> sorry. 
you know, understand we can't have any women coming, can't have any women journalists. And to this day, I don't know where I found this. And I just paused for half a second. And I said, well, listen, I will come as a woman, but I will dress like a man. He said, oh, okay, that's fine. So oh there we gosh. were, and the, the pictures are still, they were published and you can still, they still pop up occasionally. So there I was wearing the shalwar kameez, the tunic and trousers. My hair was up in the, the pakul hat that they, they wear. And when we were driving in to this, across the Pakistan-Afghan border, my Pakistani colleague, Rahim Ali Yusufzai said, please, the men in the pickup truck in front of us are discussing whether you're a man or you're a woman. And they can't figure out what it is. But of course, when the moment came to hold the press conference with the commander, this commander with this huge big beard, who later uh, was put on the terrorism list in the United States, and its Haqqani network is now on the terrorism list, but back in the day, it wasn't. So you have this big commander with the, all of the, with the, you know, standing there, but it plays bristling with guns, all of the men. And who is given the seat of choice? Well, of course, me. Because there I am, the journalist dressed like a man, but obviously a woman. So I'm given all of the respect and honors that, that should be accorded to a woman that I'm sitting in the best seat of all, which is right next to the commander. So it's this sort of thing that as long as we found a way forward that allowed them to save face, I, I protected my journalism and they protected uh, their approach uh, to the way things should be. Wow. Well, Lisa, yeah. I knew you'd have some type of bonkers story. So you definitely ticked that box. Lisa, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. What a really fun and interesting conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you for your questions, which are full of uh, your zest and your energy. I always say that we're defined by our questions as journalists. So very lovely, very nice to hear your questions. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson.